Welcome back to the Workspace Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Moran. Uh, Today's guest is Chad O'Connor. He's a professor of advertising, marketing, and corporate communications at Northeastern University. He's also a consultant for several startups, both here in the States and abroad. I invited Chad to be a guest on the podcast because it's been a goal of mine for a while to interview someone in higher education. We ended up having a great discussion on a few different things, how his curriculum has changed due to the rapid pace of development in marketing and advertising. What's it like molding young minds today? And what advice does he have for employers who are hiring these young adults fresh out of college these days? So we had a great discussion. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hey, Chad, thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. I really appreciate it. So why don't we just start off with having you tell the guests a little bit about yourself and and what you're up to these days in your profession. Sure. So the majority of my time is teaching. Uh, I teach in three different programs at Northeastern, the undergraduate and graduate advertising and brand, and then also on the graduate side, classes in business communication. So it would be organizational culture, crisis communication. And then we have an accelerator for students, faculty, an alumni who can apply for help through that. It's called IDEA. So I help mentor some of the SARPs through that and sort of like the broader venture mentor network that we have for Northeastern. Oh, very good. And then um, I also do some occasional continuing ed night and weekend uh, public speaking through Massasoit Community College down here. When I'm not doing those things, I do some consulting. I have a couple of startups who I got hooked in with a while back through an MIT Portugal program. I used to run a business blog for boston.com. I went to some places in Europe where I was writing pieces about some of those Boston-Europe connections. And Hmm. there was a group in Lisbon that I kind of fell in with, and I've been advising some startups there for the last few years. Cool. So what's the startup environment like in Europe? It's definitely challenging, I think, on certain levels. The critiques there have been that many of those places are less willing to take risk. The funding rounds are smaller you tend to get government investment to help sort of prop some of that up or to co-invest as a Mm. way to sort of help take some of the risk out of that. Things have gotten a bit better, I could say, just in terms of Lisbon. I think one of the interesting things that sort of changed the dynamic there was Web Summit decamping from Dublin to to set up there each year in Lisbon now. Mm. So it's done a better job of attracting Lisbon as having more of like people know it now has a startup focus, even though the depths of their recession, that was one of the ways they were trying to kind of grow themselves back out of it. Okay. So I think, uh, you know, over the last several years, I would say I've noticed that there's more groundswell around startups. They've had, a, you know, a few companies that would classify as unicorns. And so it's it's kind of an interesting mix there. I can you know, at least speak to that a bit more so. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there are other markets there that I just don't know as well anymore. Yeah. So back to the accelerator at Northeastern, are there some companies or brands that we would know that have started there that have been successful? I mean, the one I I love and know the most is uh, Maverick, who is a social media influencer platform that came out of there. So they originally were called Splash Score when they were at Northeastern. Then they went through Techstars and rebranded as Maverick. So they actually uh, have had multiple funding rounds and pretty good roster of clients uh, going at this point. So it's like a platform for influencers it, to sort of jumpstart their careers? No, or? it's uh, so that they can kind of go through and score a person's influence and then try to help oh. create a match for you know brands who are looking to figure out, okay, if we were going to deploy these kind of assets, yep. uh, you know, what would be the, the smartest strategy to go at it? And 
everything from trying to identify your mom bloggers, you know, on up, you know, like my own two cents on some of those issues around social influence and whatever. I know for a lot of people, they think it's it's been kind of like a wild west and that mm-hmm. it's really difficult to know who's got solid, quote, engagement uh, versus people whose numbers are, you know, propped up. I think that's where, you know, a system like Maverick is good at trying to help identify those kind of things and really help people understand, businesses understand that if they're going to deploy towards those sort of things where the pressure seems to be, you got to move your money from traditional advertising and marketing over to that. It's good to have some evidence as to they where you They want to see a return. Yeah. Yeah. Remember the clout score, your social media clout score? <laughs> I think they finally shut that down. But it's yeah, good to I, see that others out there are trying to do something similar, but in perhaps a more yeah, concrete no, way. Yeah, no, the cloud score thing, I, I get a rollback tape on, and be like, how big was my cloud score now? And yeah. what, what were the games that people used to play to try to boost up a cloud score you all know, you had artificially? To do, I figured it out. All you had to do was post pictures of your really good looking children, and your cloud score would go up. I swear to God. <laughs> it never hurt. You know, the, the internet never has a problem with adorable kids and adorable dogs, dogs. as a way to, uh, yeah. you know, latch in some followers. For yeah. So it's, it's good. Good. Also, I think just tweeting anything with a hashtag growth hacking would ama- like automatically get you like these bots that would just relentlessly retweet you. So too yeah, funny. It's one of those deals. <laughs> Glad you came in. I really wanted to try to get a guest on the podcast that was in higher education. I kind of think about it a lot as far as kids today or kids in their 18 to 22 okay. year old bracket and is, is that like kids today shaking fists like these kids today or no i mean that? like well if you think about it throughout history like every young generation gets a bad rap like it was like mm-hmm. the hippies in the 60s and mm-hmm. and like i think i got a bad rap you know, we look about the same age so we mm-hmm. got a bad rap because the music that we listened to was played sure. by people with really dirty clothes Sure. I will date myself as being the 40-year-old kid who grew up in a lot of punk rock. So why the hell are you going to that venue in that place with those people? Right. Yeah, sure. And it seems like mass media thinks that anyone that's under 35 years old is, is a millennial, which is really not true. Sure. But I think it should be interesting for us to have a little conversation around just like what's going on with kids today and how are you molding minds and what as corrupting we... the youth yeah. <laughs> what as business owners should sure. we keep in mind as these people enter the workforce you know one of the biggest questions rolling around my head is how has social media and pervasive technology molded these minds over time i mean most of them have only grown up with an iphone if they're 17 years old they've only had an iphone mm-hmm. or they've only known a phone to be an iphone right. basically as far as they can remember so you know, just in general, how has that shaped kids over time? That's one of those weird little quirks of when you talk about just you've only grown up knowing the iPhone for that generation. There's this fancy S word, skewomorphism, right? Which is that you have to design something to remind people of something else they've already experienced or they don't know what to do with it. So if you think about when you and I would turn on our quote iPhone or, you know, Android phone or whatever it is, yeah. you want to actually use the phone to call somebody, you push the little button that has the picture of the thing that looks like the old handheld receiver that you take off a wall or whatever. Because yeah. that's clearly what we're used to thinking about originally. Your original association was, oh, call phone, pick up that thing and yep. make it happen. And I do wonder, like, in the long run, it's the only way they know that is because there's still some of those vestigial ones, you know, kicking around at, you know, some hotel they've been at or something else. At some point, we're going to get to this deal where it's like, I don't know what will be the new reference for actually calling someone if we we don't have that (laughs) (laughs) anymore. I mean, just in terms of social use and how that stuff works, I think the thing that I always struggle with to a certain degree is understanding how do you enable it and try to 
bring it into the things that you want to talk about, yet also make sure that it's not just being the only focus of everything all the time, right? So mm. in my case with teaching, advertising, and brand, clearly the budget shift and the priority is towards looking at social media and where you want to deploy those dollars. And so there are certain things where I'm saying, okay, I'm not going to spend class time talking really about radio advertising because mm -hmm. it, it is certainly important in the mix for someone whose specific brand purposes identified that demographic and psychographic is being really teed up for radio. But I could put that in an appendix and let a kid read up on that on their own if it's really something that's going to be interesting or relevant specifically to them. Instead, you kind of keep the focus on social there. In terms of actual in-class experience and the interaction with kids, I would say I'm more than willing to allow a person to have a laptop up, to take some notes, to go jump online to look up something while we're talking about it, those kind of things. But at the same time, there's also this idea of social media has done a great job of rewiring brains to the point where it is addictive yep. personality stuff. And uh, for the number of times where I'm sitting in the back of a classroom with my laptop open trying to grade a student presentation or something, and I could see out of the corner of my eye when I scan across the room the number of laptops at that point that are open to something totally different. You know, they are scrolling through social. Yeah. They are hunting for deals on some site. They've got, you know, multiple windows open, so you can tell while they're working on a paper for another class, they've also got a Facebook feed going or something like that. It's yep. it, that kind of thing where it is so ubiquitous that I have to, you know, occasionally chew them out and say, look, you have to be present. You have to be in the moment. You have to be self-disciplined to know what your tendencies are here. Mm -hmm. And that for a kid who hates public speaking already to get up in front of a room full of students and know that no one's paying attention to them because... That's got to be hard. Right. That's really... So, you know, as I said, I'm more conscious of these sort of things because I taught public speaking. So I think about that kind of thing, right? And for the number of people who just aren't comfortable with it to begin with, yep. there's more than enough things to keep a person distracted and throw them off their game when it comes to public speaking. You're looking for eye contact. You're trying to judge those sorts of things. And I always say to the kids, I said, look... I'm an adult. They pay me to be here. Someone's paying for you to be here and whatever. Like, if you want to waste your money and not pay attention to me when I'm talking, that's fine. I don't give a shit. It'll roll off my back. Yeah. But when one of your classmates is getting up, you owe it to them to keep focused on them as much as possible. So if that means you have to turn off your phone, turn off your laptop to make sure you are not going to get buzzed and otherwise distracted by any little notification that will accidentally tear you away from them. And all of a sudden, five minutes later, you've been locked in. Because I mean, that's how it goes for all of us, right? Yep. I think you get that lovely little notification buzz. And you're like, ooh, that reminds me. I haven't checked that in a bit. And then you get sucked down the rabbit hole. And here you are 10 minutes later trying to figure out, like, why haven't I stopped myself yet from watching this Instagram story <laughs> after Instagram story after Instagram story? That's yeah. just how it goes. And it's, I think, like you said, because generationally, we are more attuned to that because we didn't have it from day one. Right. Whereas I think to a certain degree that they've done a great job of making sure those kids don't even think about it and know it. So it's funny because I will build that material into the course to try to get them to read pieces about, you know, what Facebook claims they can actually identify for tendencies within people and yep. whether or not that was all, you know, someone sort of just talking to inflate themselves in their position. But I think the overall critique has always been that these systems, these platforms are built in a way to kind of put those defenses down, 
and to go for maximum engagement. So that's where I think the problems really lie. So with the pace of innovation through all these different platforms that have grown up in the past, I guess, 10 years, yep. how do you keep pace of all the innovation such that it does something to the left or right? That, that's a really tough one to grapple with, right? So I have no love lost for the textbook industry overall, because I think that there were plenty of books, plenty of subjects, cases where you could look at what they're doing and say, you are trying to repackage something that is already common, easy to find and play tricks with it so that you can, you know, again, from a marketing and advertising perspective, generate this false sense of extra value, which allows you to jack up this price and do whatever. And, you know, guilty as charged, I used to work for Pearson you know, way back in the day. There were certain, you know, value added things that were going on with some of those books. And some of them I thought were really legitimately good value added, new things that are new developments and other stuff, like I said, I think becomes that game of, well, how do we convince a kid to buy the new version of this textbook as opposed to just go buy three editions ago version, which will be pretty much just as good, right? Yeah. But within the advertising and marketing fields, there are, like you said, so many new platforms and new things that wrinkle that constantly. It is a problem to keep up. And several years back, I made the bite the bullet determination that I didn't like the rate at which the textbooks are able to keep up. So mm. what I was using for a quote new advertising textbook in year one of it being new did not realize that Snapchat was really a thing and that Snapchat had a monetization strategy already, yeah. a fledgling monetization strategy, but something, right? But again, going back to the example of here's this book with a really nice chapter on radio advertising <laughs> and nothing about Snapchat. And, yeah. and in fairness, that book couldn't have done it because to look at what that time cycle is, you sit down, you start to put together a book. It's going to take you maybe a year to slog through everything, right? And mm. then you've got to send it to an editor, and they're going to want to go through it for approvals, and then you get into a publishing schedule. Yeah. So you could be looking at something that before it is actually even, quote, in print or available for distro is already a year to a year and a half behind whatever's going on. So yeah. you then have to have these sort of online portals that come with the book that will get updated more regularly and then you wait two years from then you say oh well, we'll put out a new edition of the book and we'll try to fold in some of the things that were on the online portal into the other book and then we'll have a new book we can sell and that sort of repeats the cycle so i thought that there's a significant portion of that stuff that's core basic fundamental principle stuff about how you think about segmentation how you think about some of those issues that are fundamental to any type of advertising or marketing, that mm -hmm. that will always be core. But it's all the other stuff that needing to be rebalanced between how much do I want to put on this platform versus this other thing versus some other new tool that no one's anticipated. So this is going back now, I think four years ago, I made that determination that I just wasn't going to keep using the book. So I spent some of the downtime I had during the summer, which as I kind of alluded to you off, off air here before, they don't always pay you great in higher ed, but you do have time off and that for better or for worse, you got to figure out what you want to do with it. So I just sort of culled what I could from that book and put together this mega slide deck that, you know, had the core content I thought that was really salvageable from okay. the book. And then I built out other 
units on the other platforms that are you know kind of tangentially there and whatever yeah and then i could go through and, and comb around online between adweek adage the verge the washington post the globe whoever had decent explanations of certain things in business sections or in you know trade publications and whatever mm-hmm. and be able to say like oh great well i could start putting together slides that where i'm talking about a concept that's related to this i could just hyperlink directly to the article and let the kid go straight to that and, and read it right from the source okay. or why am I going to try to explain some new Google strategy to someone where I'm only going to at best be able to give you sort of a high level thing on it? And that's fine. I could talk about certain high level elements of that in class. But if it's something that's really interesting to you, I can embed Sundar Pinchai's keynote from a Google conference where yeah. he spends 45 minutes talking about it. And now that kid knows, hey, if you want more on this, here it is. So what's the form factor? You're working in a slide deck like a PowerPoint? Yeah, so it is a Google slide replacement, if you will, for a book. It now is hovering somewhere at around 490 slides or something like that, right? So okay. it's built out like a book. Now, some of those, as I said, are one slide will be an actual ad that you're looking at. For mm-hmm. examples, another mm-hmm. slide will be a John Oliver takedown of lottery advertising. Another slide will be four bullet points about a certain theme that then have, you know, two hyperlinks embedded in there to take you to an article about whatever. So mm-hmm. I know the number, you know, like, oh my God, 500 slides sounds huge. But if you think about a textbook and kind of compare it, I think it really does it's comparable. sort of get yeah. comparable. And yeah. again, it, it gives the flexibility of one, it's sort of like choose your own adventure to a degree with certain things where I'm saying I can share with you more of those higher level points that I want to make. And mm-hmm. then it's really up to you if there's something in there that's going to be more relevant or specific to you to click through and drill down, spend more time watching that video, read all those articles. Yep. So that's one advantage there. And then the other advantage is because it's living and dynamic, I can add new sections that are further up in there. You know, yep. I can backfill some stuff after I've gotten to it and I realize, ah, you know, that's not as great of an explanation. It's a living sure. document. I spend some time, you know, each break where I have that to take a stockpile of links or other things I want to get to and then try to update it. So do Uh, you give specific lectures on certain sections? Like you'll take 10, 12 slides per lecture and and lecture from that, but then that's also a consumable that they have? The way to kind of classify is like a hybrid deck, right? So there are certain slides that are in there that I would tell you you wouldn't put want to put them up in front of a room full of people because it's got so much text. No one could ever yeah, really yeah. read through it. Okay. So I, I say to them, like, please go read that go on read your that. own. Okay, and, like, yeah, you know, yeah. click through this article to go read that on their own. And there will be certain sections where, depending on time management, where I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to skip these five or six slides and tell you, you know, go back and watch this video. Go back and read this piece about whatever. Got it. And then move on to the other stuff I want to. But it's easier for my management to really keep the flow going of stuff to yep. still match up. You know, here's what's in what you're supposed to be reading and, and what we're going to talk about. And do you find your colleagues are also doing this? No. I've had some colleagues who have asked, why do you want to do that and add to the complexity and the workload of doing something like that? And that to a certain degree, I understand, you know, why that is. You know, it's speaking from my own, it's... You have to invest the time to get it up and running the way you want. And then there's time that you have to spend, you know, just kind of managing it, going back through. And yeah. you know, even though I tell students, hey, uh, if, if there's a dead link in here or this article's now behind a paywall or something, 
let me know and some of them do and some of them don't and then I'm just, i get in a class and i'm about to queue up this video and the video is now one <laughs> of those gone. grayed out yeah, you know yeah, this yeah. video is no longer available yeah, and i'm yeah, like yeah. weren't you all supposed to have gotten to this point by now to <laughs> tell me what shouldn't one of you told me that this doesn't work <laughs> you know there's some of those kind of problems and i think for certain students there's that predictability of knowing okay you're going to get a textbook it's going to be assigned to you you're going to have to do this this and this and certain people really like that structure and knowing that okay well i'm accountable i've done this so i do try to mark it off to them to say okay before we get to next week's class you should be 30 more slides deep Mm. you know and just try to structure it like that like if you're taking it in chunks of 30 slides or something that's roughly what you should be thinking of for you know a chapter or some Mm -hmm. sort of equivalent just to keep up but then i do i get you know students who will kind of critique it i didn't like that it was as self-driven or that i had to go through and click through on all these things i'm saying i don't know how you're going to survive in life yeah right if that's your criticism for me being self-motivated is you know i I can be poor man's dr phil and chew you out occasionally but i don't know where we go from there yeah so i understand why certain you know colleagues of mine look at it as like i've got other things i'm working on and which you know i do too and they just don't think they have the time and the bandwidth to do it they would rather have the book and yep. have the predictability and the, the students to the same degree, right? Look at it's like, okay, well, that's what we get. Yeah. I think your subject matter lends to it better, though. I mean, if you're a geology professor, you know, the book's been written. It's not that geology isn't dynamic, but it's... Plate tectonics and all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I get you. It's exactly. It's certain subjects. It's the, the pace sure. of your topics. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the kids these days that are entering the workforce. Yeah. Generally, what advice do you have for employers that are going to be hiring these kids? I speak from a couple of different fronts on that. One being touting what I think is the advantage of the Northeastern model that we use, which is the co-op. That's right. So for the most part, there are four-year options in which you you can do that differently. But for Northeastern's model of having a five-year program and full year of that being designated as co-op time is six months in one year and then six months in another. Mm -hmm. I think that those students get more real-world exposure Mm -hmm. from doing that. So it makes my job somewhat easier when I'm teaching them in the upper-level classes around that because they have practical experience. They've had some degree of practical experience. Or at least exposure. (laughs) Exactly. It might not be specific to advertising and marketing and brand, but if they're already a business student and then we start talking about, well, oh, okay, so... This is really about economy of scale, and really what's trying to happen is you're trying to convince people that you're going to give them this product at this ultra-sized, like, jumbo package, and Mm -hmm. that they're getting this great value out of it. But in reality, what you figured was it was cheaper for me to manufacture tons of that stuff, (laughs) and I'll get a better deal doing that so I could turn around and get a a higher profit margin when I do it. So they have already are used to maybe something from, oh, they worked on in a thing where the company was handling supply chain and they had to sit in through those meetings. And there are some things where it helps jumpstart parts of that conversation a bit easier. And to which I say, you know, if you're kind of smart about an employer strategy with a co-op, you can, in essence, really get it where a kid at Northeastern finishes their spring semester in early to mid-April, depending on when their last final exam would be. And then that kid can, in essence, start an internship for you for the remainder of April, May, and June, Mm -hmm. and then transition that into a six-month co-op for you where they will, in essence, work full-time or close to full-time equivalent, depending on how you want to structure it. Mm -hmm. You have to pay them for that part. But you can get them really for 
nine months of try it before you buy it access and figure out if that's a kid who is yep. really a great fit here. If you're, you're trying to figure out what's your cost to your own employees and how you internalize that for a, a kid who's an intern for three months versus someone who you're going to have for six to nine, of course, you're going to feel more comfortable about spending more time investing in training and coaching up that kid because you conceive a better return on investment mm -hmm. for doing that. So going back to your original question and where I think the model really needs to look at stronger opportunities for kids is that Northeastern does well because we have this co-op model mm. and that we are able to put out kids who are a bit more groomed for the workforce in some of those environments than mm -hmm. other students. And to that degree, I would say if you're hiring one of them, you should feel more comfortable early on with saying, you know what, I don't need to hold this kid back as mm. much as someone who you know, teaches organizational culture, I want you to have a good onboarding process. I want you to really try to instill in them what your thought processes are and why things are done a certain way around there. But you should also look at is that that kid is probably coming to you with a higher starting point than other kids who are just kind of coming in off the street. And uh, you should try to take advantage of that opportunity as, as much as possible. Where I get to the other end of this, the broader economy and what's going on with higher ed, you see more smaller schools struggling to keep up with enrollments and to justify you know, what's mm -hmm. going on. And I think the, quote, more perceived elite colleges and the ones that have this sort of differentiating qualities about them mm -hmm. will continue to attract those kids. And I do think some of that goes back to the preparedness of the students coming out of those smaller colleges. How good are their alumni networks? It does not always generate great opportunity so it does not continue to be rewarded in a very competitive marketplace. Whereas, yeah. say what you will about Northeastern and, and how there is definitely a, a mentality of, well, we have to keep moving up the rankings. There's that kind of focus that happens there. But it does also help in terms of, well, it gets you a better recruitment pool, which gets you better quality students. Those students are then better prepared, hopefully, by the end of their Northeastern education. They do better in the workforce and in turn net more Northeastern students. I mean, going back to what I was talking about with Maverick, having come out of Northeastern in our accelerator, one of the people at Maverick is going to come in to speak to one of my advertising classes about social whatever. And I, of course, said, you guys want to come back because you want to identify kids who are really sure. interested in into this and who we can get into an internship or a co-op for you who then get hired. I have former students of mine who work there. And it, like I said, it's a virtuous cycle. You yeah, know, if you know what so you're fulfilling. identifying and how that works. There's this piece I read several years ago where, you know, people at Harvard, if you went through one of the schools at Harvard, it wasn't just that you had the degree from that school. It was then a question of, well, what professors did you take, right? Like whose classes? So to really drill down on, wow. you know, how well did you learn about a certain thing? And if that's important. So within some of the bigger consulting firms, they would look at a kid and be like, oh, well, not all HBS <laughs> oh kids are created equal. Yeah. I want to know, did you <laughs> What have, were they exposed to? Yeah, what were they exposed to? Because wow. their assumption is that certain kids are going to be trained better on certain things if they have taken a class with so-and-so, right? I mean, that's how granular 
you can get at the, that level. And that's why I, I think overall with higher ed, it's, it's sort of a stack deck that the rich continue to get richer. The bigger schools continue to do better because they have that magnet power hmm. that the smaller schools can't unless they figure out better ways to kind of band together and, and do that. Yeah. One thing that younger generations get a bad rap about is the whole participation trophy. Is it true? Does that carry on as they grow older? Do you find that kids these days need that sort of affirmation for certain things and it's specific i don't want to paint a broad stroke on that i will definitely say yeah i've taught more than a handful of them who have that kind of problem where you understand that they're constantly looking for everything needs to be an a if it's not an a it wasn't good enough and when you have written a lengthy explanation as to why it was not an A and grading <laughs> feedback. Yeah. And somehow they are looking for more. On, yeah. on, I don't know what more I can tell you <laughs> other than your wish was not perfect. And you have a very good grade, right? There is that orientation around what constitutes a good grade, you know, and obviously everywhere, I think in higher ed, there's been this issue about what we it's a grade inflation and the problem of not all standards being met properly. And if you don't do that, what that eventually means is your degree in the long run becomes less valuable because everyone sort of well everyone does well there that's not good for anybody but in the small scale when you're trying to explain to a kid i need a certain number of you to get c's because it's good for everybody well when you are a c unless you understand that like oh well it's not a condemnation of my uh, eternal soul it's <laughs> yeah. just how you did stacked up against everybody else that right. is really really difficult to explain to someone and that's where i think you start to notice it right where someone's like my participation score should have been better i think i did better on these projects and i'm really want to know why i didn't do better because again based on any other observation i could tell you here are these things that i thought were not as great that doesn't mean I wouldn't give you a great recommendation letter. I wouldn't introduce you to people in my network to try to help you get hired. It just means I have to put my grading cap on and say, here's what I think this work looks like compared to someone else. And that's where I think you notice the participation trophy mentality pops up with some of them more than others. Yeah, but it's not an epidemic. It's not systemic. It's not. uh, No, it's not like. uh, I think it gets blown up a little bit. It really does. I mean, statistically, if I'm just thinking about an average class size of 25 kids, I might have two who really hit the participation trophy level. Yeah, that's probably got something to do with what you know what's going on at home, but we don't need to have that discussion. Yeah, today. no, obviously, yeah. you know, I've yeah. I've always said to them, I'm like, look, if you're a Type A personality and you're super driven independently yeah. in and of yourself, then yeah. that's okay. That I have a begrudging respect for that on every level. But there is that other side of it, which I do think we sort of know is psychologically a bit dark. You don't want to think about that. Like that kid knows that if he doesn't get an A. That when he talks to his parents, there's somehow some personal shame or, mm. you're, or that you're not as good as your brother kind of, you know, both that happens. And yep. none of us know what goes on behind closed doors with that. And I'm always dreadful that like, oh, my God, I could be the one who triggers that for some kid. Yeah. And that kid's not going to come tell you that. I mean, you have no idea. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming in, Chad. We had a good chat covered some topics that I think our listeners will enjoy. So okay. appreciate your time. Hopefully I'll have you back when we think of a couple more topics. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. Glad we could get in here to even with the polar vortex going on today around <laughs> yeah. these parts. At, the, at least we're not Chicago or Duluth or Jeez. you know any of those places. I look at that and I, I have no idea how you live. All right, man. Hey, thanks again. No, great. Thanks. Cheers. Once again, that was Chad O'Connor. He's a professor at 
Northeastern University. I neglected to ask Chad to tell all the listeners how to get a hold of him if they wanted to reach out. So you can find him on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy. Chad O'Connor, professor at Northeastern. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review, and most importantly, share with your friends. The Workspace Podcast can be found on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. If you have any interest in being a guest sometime, please don't hesitate to reach out. Just email me at info at workspacema.com. Thanks for listening today, and we'll see you on the next one.